0: Hello and welcome to our new season of Sailor Time to Pause. A new season with a new schedule. We still have all your favourite episode types such as Musical Musings, What's Happening in the World, Prayer and Bible Study, which will each be released every Monday for you to listen to at your leisure during the week. And we're also welcoming a new official member of the podcast team, Gracie, who you've heard before and who will be joining us for our So What on the Last Day in the Month where we spend time looking back and reflecting on the month, and where we also share any thoughts from our listener community. We look forward to spending time together in this new season. It's great to have you with us. Throughout Lent, we were delighted to welcome many more listeners to our podcast and were overjoyed to see some of the conversation that started happening on our Facebook page, and we really hope that continues. And with a host of new listeners and with the new schedule, we thought it might be good to take a bit of a break in our Bible study episodes from our walk through John's Gospel, though we may well return to it later in the year. And so, for a few weeks, we're going to move to the Old Testament, to the book of Job.
1: In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face.
2: Stop and breathe in your presence Just breathe Just breathe
0: The joy and relief were palpable. The midwife had invited the new father into the room where his wife had just given birth that he could meet his new son. As soon as those in the room had heard that wonderful sound of baby's first cry and the midwife had quickly checked that mum was doing well, she had sent word that dad could now come in. As he entered, he saw his son for the first time. There he was in his mother's arms, lying against her chest, his eyes still screwed up tight, two chubby little arms and two wriggling little legs, all present and correct. Ten tiny fingers and ten tiny toes were counted for the first time. Both parents knew that they were in love with this new arrival, God's gift to them. For a few minutes, time stood still in that room around the new family as they spent their first few moments together. Moments of peace and adoration surrounded by love. But now the practicalities. The midwife gently inserted herself back into their world and took the child to clean him up properly giving mum and dad the chance to talk quietly to each other. They had some practicalities to arrange too. But then, in an instant, their world collapsed in on itself. The village women and the midwife had begun talking frantically to each other. A gabble of sound that they could not make out, but the tone of their voices made it evident. Something was up. Something was wrong with their child. What is it? They asked. What's going on? They raised their voices to try to be heard. They tried to get some answers, but the commotion continued. One of the women turned towards them with a kindly look and motioned for them to keep calm, though even as she did so, she knew that it was a futile effort. After the dad roared, the room was immediately silent and all eyes turned to the father standing by his wife's side, his chest heaving while he caught back his breath. What is it, he asked. What's wrong? All eyes turned now to the midwife who said in the most matter-of-fact voice that she could manage, he's blind. The new parents were heartbroken at the news. Their new child... The perfect boy who they'd been embracing only a few minutes earlier was no longer quite so perfect. The dawning realisation came that life for him and life for them was going to be more difficult than they had imagined. They looked at the faces around them. They would need the support of the village now more than ever, yet as they scanned the room they could see in the eyes of those faces that the recriminations had begun, each mind thinking, What has this couple done that God should punish them so? What sin lies in their past? Why was the Lord angry? What could have been so evil that this child should have to suffer so for their wrongdoing? The parents knew that they would not have the village's support. That baby is a man now. But since he was born blind, life did not go easily for him. His parents had struggled to care for him so he'd grown up as a street beggar in Jerusalem. One day Jesus and his disciples passed by the place where he was begging and Jesus saw him. And I don't mean that Jesus saw them like the priest and the Levite saw the man on the Jericho road seeing him and passing by on the other side. That was the reflex that this man had grown to expect, see and avoid. But Jesus saw with compassion and moved towards him. When the disciples saw Jesus' attention turn to the blind man, they asked for an explanation of his blindness.
1: Rabbi, who sinned, this
0: man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Even good men who had spent time walking in Jesus' footsteps, listening to his teaching and learning from him, had the same reaction as those women who'd been present at the birth. What caused God to be so angry as to allow this suffering? What evil in this man's life, or the lives of his parents, brought this pain to pass? 2,000 years on, and we haven't changed really. We certainly haven't improved. We may perhaps have learned a little about disability, but we're no closer to understanding pain and suffering. We continue to struggle and search for meaning in hardship. We still look for blame and cause. It's thankfully rare today to hear such comments aloud about others, though even as a non-football supporter. I can remember the controversy caused by the one-time England manager Glenn Hoddle claiming that the disabled were being punished for sin in a past life. But we seem to still find it acceptable when talking about ourselves.
1: Why me? Where did I go wrong?
0: Our questions we ask when we suffer. When things get difficult, when time gets hard, when life is not what we might want it to be, The same thought processes that existed in first century Jerusalem and which flourished in ancient civilizations around the globe still come to the fore. Perhaps our so-called enlightened world has not progressed that far after all. Suffering is punishment. Pain is chastisement. Adversity is karmic retribution. Misfortune is discipline. What goes around comes around. If you're reaping it, you must have sown it. Whether we listen to it or not... An inner voice will tell us to take a long, hard look at ourselves and just ask, why? Affliction, misery and torment must be our comeuppance for something. We haven't really developed any further. What have I done to deserve this?
1: It can't be right.
0: Why is God punishing me? We may have questions about suffering, but in the story of Job, Satan also has a question to ask. Does Job only serve God because it gets him many things? It turns our question on its head. Rather than asking where the suffering comes because we've offended God, Satan asks if this man only chooses to follow God in order to avoid suffering. It's a good question. The fact that it comes from the mouth of the heavenly prosecutor does not diminish its worth. In fact, it's a very good question. It's the question that holds the book together, the linchpin in its narrative. Does Job only serve God because it gets him many things? Job had come to the attention of the heavenly court. He was different to the world around him. He lives in dark days, yet he refuses to fit in. He's a good man of complete integrity and God has blessed him. When the Bible introduces us to Job, we're immediately told that he's a God-fearing man. Scripture wants there to be no debate about this fact. With most other characters, the Bible invites us to see the flaws in our heroes in order that we might understand that no flaw, no matter how significant it may seem to us, will place us outside the love of God or put us beyond his ability to use. But with Job, there is no discussion. We're not told that he is perfect, but we are told that he is blameless. In the story that's to follow, we're not to seek out any space where we can lay blame at Job's feet. And if we think we may have found it, then we should dismiss our thoughts and move on. Right at the beginning of the book, we have the answer to Satan's question, even before he has the opportunity to ask it. Job is not good just because it makes him rich. Job really is good. He has a heart that knows and loves God. Job is good inside. Over the course of this book, Job will face truly dark days. Anguish and torment will follow him. His life will become an unrelenting ordeal of affliction, distress and misery. Yet Job, who will suffer terrible things, is good from his heart. What Satan says about the motivation for following God is not true for Job, but it may be true for others. Many people want to be Christians because they think they will have better lives. They think that God will bless them. They want the good things that God gives. We may be tempted to ask, why me, questions and wonder what we may have done to deserve whatever burdens may come our way. But there is plain teaching here in this book that in our world, good people do indeed suffer through no fault of their own. It may also be tempting to believe ancient notions that may tell us we must have done something wrong to deserve the problems we face, and that if we live a good life, then we'll deserve better. But this book shows us that even in ancient days, God was refuting the ancient superstitions. Many, many years later, when Jesus called his disciples to follow him, His call was not to an easy life, and he did not promise trouble-free days. Jesus' call was clear that being a God-follower would not be an easy life. His call was to take up a cross and walk in his footsteps. His caution was that if he faced troubles, then so would we. His promise was not a life of ease, but his companionship along life's journey. Job was a good man. When God gave him many things, Job was still a good man. If God were to take everything away, and as this book proceeds, he will, even then Job will still be a good man. When a person is good on the inside, then outside things will not make him bad. When your heart is set on things above, circumstances will not change it. When your heart is pure, troubles will not lead you to compromising your actions. When your heart is true, you will follow God no matter where he leads. Job knows God. He hates evil, he loves good, and nothing that happens to Job will change that. What if God took away your money, your house, your health, your family? Would you be like Job? Would you still trust God, love good and hate evil? Or do you only follow God when life is easy? Jesus says to his people, "You are the light of the world. They shine like the sun. Real Christians shine because they have light inside. Their goodness shines out when people behave badly around them. Their goodness shines out in the darkness of the world around them. Darkness is not something just overseas or in some other city. Without looking too hard, we can see the darkness of sin in our own neighbourhoods as well. In the darkness of this world, we are called to be the light. We're to be like a city set on a hill. A city's not a single light, but it's a collection of many lights. That image of a city on a hill speaks of us letting our lights shine as a community of faith. It speaks of the influence of the church in the world around us. We are to be a vocal, visible, vibrant witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people copy the people around them. At work, they're like the people at work. At church, they're like the people at church. But true Christians are not like this. We're called to be lights that shine out goodness. We're called to be good inside God has changed us and made us good, just as he made Job good. Has God made you good on the inside? Or do you only look like a Christian when you're around Christians? We're to be different, even in times of hardship, especially, perhaps, in times of hardship. How might we, how might you answer Satan's question if he posed it to you? Do you only serve God because it gets you many things? Do you only serve God when it's easy?